people in the business world often aren't like that committed to the long-term character. I think it's fair to speak of a character of a company. And, and you know, that, that, that has an effect on the long-term value of a product, but we don't, we're not trained to think in these kind of mm-hmm. long-term perspectives about things. And I, so that's like how it's affected my personal business philosophy for one. If somebody great makes a mistake that you're in this kind of emulated relationship with, you can learn so much more from the mistakes of people like that. Welcome to Stoic Conversations. My name is Caleb Ontiveros. In this podcast, Michael Tremblay and I discuss the theory and practice of Stoicism. Each week, we'll share two conversations, one between the two of us, and another will be an in-depth conversation with an expert. In this conversation, I speak with Alex Petkas. Alex is a former classics professor who now works in the industrial coatings industry combining theory and practice. One of his key projects is the podcast, The Cost of Glory. In this podcast, Alex modernizes Plutarch's parallel lives. Plutarch was an ancient biographer, his most famous work. The parallel lives is a set of biographies of great Romans and Greeks. Alex's podcast brings these stories to life in an accessible, entertaining, and important way. It's a great project because it focuses on individuals, individuals who can serve as both role models and anti-models. We talk about characters like Marius, Cato, Sulla, Pyrrhus. We also talk about the importance of role models and how ancient lives carry lessons for ordinary life and business. Here is Alex Petkas. Thanks for joining, Alex. Great to be here, Caleb. Thanks for having me. So let's start with a broad question. What's your story? So I got interested in ancient philosophy and the classical world through, I was interested in Christianity first, raised in the Greek Orthodox Church. Mm-hmm. And that kind of led me to the study of ancient Greek. I, I was a terrible student in high school. And so I always felt like I was behind and I wanted to be educated. I said I was not educated in college and I was like, oh, I got to catch up. And so I ended up chasing this thread of trying to understand Western culture and trying to get the education that I felt like I should have gotten when I was a kid. And I kind of just kept chasing it and, and, and on into graduate school because I, I pieced together that leaders of the past, the great kind of like leaders of the West of the past, they studied classics. And so I felt like I had just scratched the surface really with my undergrad degree. But the main thing I was interested in was like studying the philosophers of antiquity and the history was also really appealing to me. But I, so I never really made it my goal to become a, an academic, but I fell into that as one does. It was mainly just the idea of having my living expenses subsidized while I just sat around and read Greek and Latin. It sounded amazing. So that's, that kind of took me through much of the early part of my career, and I ended up becoming an academic almost by default. And as I, as I got deeper into my studies, what I ended up focusing on was, was really the lives of ancient philosophers. How did they arrange their affairs? How did they make money? How did they relate to their city? Were they involved in politics? Were they, were they involved in war? How did they justify that? Or how did they explain what they were doing in these practical pursuits when, for example, Stoics, there's an argument that as a cosmopolitan philosopher who sees the race of man as their 
kin and, you know, dedicated to the fulfillment and like full flourishing of human nature, does it really make sense that you would go to war over what are often kind of petty things, border disputes, just, just thinly veiled aggressive expansionism? Like, how do they think about all these things? And, and was it a problem for them? Was it a puzzle for them? And so I ended up really being obsessed with that question in a way, and like that set of questions, like what, how do philosophers like deal with ambition? Mm -hmm. And, and I ended up working intensively on the letter collections of philosophers from the later Roman Empire. One in particular, who was a student of the philosopher Hypatia, one of the few female, successful female philosophers of antiquity, fifth century AD figure. They, there was a movie made about her, Agora, which I recommend. But so I slowly started to realize that like most of the practical advice and the best, the texts that I enjoyed and the figures that I enjoyed studying that I felt drawn to, they were not just academics. <laughs> they weren't just living the contemplative life. They were living the practical life. They were out in the world of affairs. And I kind of developed an emulative relationship, you might say, to even a guy like Plato, who is, I think, unfairly branded as an academic because he invented the whole concept of an academic. But he was actually a, you know, a uh -huh. risk taker and involved in some really interesting schemes, political schemes. And so that kind of led me out of acad academia and left the tenure track and uh, ended up in the business world. That's in a nutshell how I ended up where I am today, just wanting to live an examined life, but an examined life that was like like that of peers that I felt like philosophy was addressed to. So the Cost of Glory podcast focuses on reviving Plutarch's lives for modern audiences. What does Plutarch have to teach us today? You know, why, why go back to that classic text? Yeah, great question. Plutarch, one of the things that I realized when I was making my way out of academia is like Plutarch is an extremely practical text. And I was teaching some Roman history class and reading some of the biographies of Plutarch's Romans and just thinking, wow, suddenly these texts are coming back to, to life in a new way as I'm thinking about taking risks and like how difficult it is to pick who you trust in business and weighing whether you should pay off a mountain tribe who's blocking your passage through the Pyrenees or whether you should fight them. What is the cost of adding another two weeks to your campaign? And like, how do you like weigh these things. There's all these kind of practical questions that come up. And I think Plutarch, he's been a practical text for, for people involved in statesmanship, law, politics, war, business for most of history and got gotten, he's fallen out of our public consciousness since maybe the mid 20th century. But he used to be one of the most popular texts. He's one of the greatest bestsellers in history. He was one of the top five, his biographies, his parallel lives, which is his masterwork, although he has other works. It's a set of about 48 biographies of Greeks and Romans, and all of them statesmen and generals and orators, none of them just philosophers. They were all, some of them were interested in philosophy and studied philosophy, but they were all kind of leaders. And this was a, an extremely popular text for much of history. And so I was drawn to it. And I, I wanted to revive it for people and who are in the practical 
world who just like regular people. And so that's what I'm trying to do on my podcast. And I think what Plutarch, one of his great insights was like how important it is for people dedicated to living a virtuous life to see real examples in action, to see, to see how hard it is to make the right decision and to be prepared for that when the time comes. And that so many of Plutarch's heroes are not, are not perfect. And he criticizes them a lot. He criticizes, for example, Gaius Marius, who's this Roman consul, statesman, general, one of the greatest Romans of his day, who ends up in, in his later years, he's 70, and he's had this just brilliant career, rose from nothing, and won great wars for the Romans. His son is setting, and he just can't accept that, that reality. And he's painted himself into this corner where doesn't really have good advisors around him like a kind of a great man a typical great man like that often part of what makes them successful their forcefulness of character it can often like when they get old and set in their ways it can kind of drive off good friends who might be willing to offer critical opinions of your decisions and marius is in this position where he's surrounded by younger men who are his protégés and he's alienated part of the mm -hmm. senate and he ends up making this terrible decision to basically orchestrate a vote to deprive his greatest rival, Sulla, of this command to take a war east against this great foe, Mithridates. And Marius wants the command for himself. He wants it to be his like last hurrah. And because of that, he ends up basically plunging Rome into the civil war that lasts, that la lasts a number of years. And it's just the, like the bloodiest, most just devastating civil war that Rome faced for probably for all of her history, at least until the later Roman Empire. And I think Plutarch, and Plutarch criticizes him pretty harshly about that, even maybe unfairly, he's quite harsh on Mark, but yet he still thinks that there's something to be gained by studying Marius and emulating him. And so I think when Plutarch is a philosopher, he's a Platonist, he's very sympathetic with a lot of Stoic doctrines, but he's he criticizes them for various things, and but mainly he's they're aligned on the importance of virtue, focusing on what you can control and not what you can't. Character is just your greatest asset. It's all kinds of things that he's aligned with the Stoics on. And he felt that, I, I take it that he felt, and you can see this in a lot of his offhand comments that he makes in his biographies, that, that really biography is a spiritual exercise, a philosophical exercise studying the character of somebody who has accomplished great things that you want to emulate, even if you find fault with them. There's, there's, there's this kind of philosophical value in really understanding a man's character, especially if he's accomplished things that other people want to accomplish, gotten great honors like Gaius Marius did, and really did some wonderful patriotic things for Rome. He saved them from the Cimbri and defeated Jugurtha and all this stuff. And so I think there's there's there, there's a power in emulation that Plutarch really is tapped into. There's that, that's something that's very instinctive about humans that we want models that we really that they they really power us to move forward. And they and a lot of times, like you, um, in your kind of journey to cultivate your character, there's habits that you can instill in the morning 
journaling. There's phrases you can repeat to yourself about not letting yourself get consumed by anger. But a lot of times, like the energy behind you implementing those practices is driven by emulation, that there's a kind of a natural force behind wanting to be like somebody else. And maybe it's wanting to be like a composite of people and really cultivate this vision of who you want to be like from a composite that you put together of the best qualities of models that you admire. And, and that, that has a kind of instinctive force to it that almost is more powerful than the kind of rational practices that we implement in our daily lives or great compliments. It's not, obviously it's not either or it's like you, you need both ideally. And, and yeah, Plutarch's really tapped into that. And I think that's underlies the whole project of the parallel lives. And so that's what really interests me. And that's why I'm trying to bring these alive for people. Yeah. We're very imitative creatures, certainly. There's yeah. all sorts of different angles one could take on that, but it's quite common for at least some cultural anthropologists to put our ability to copy others as a fundamental human feature. So it stands to reason, as it were, that we should take advantage of not just copying those that are around us for historically contingent reasons, but seek out other role models. Yeah. And in a way, the heroes of Plutarch are like, they're time tested. I think the further you go back or the further you reach for models of virtue, it allows you to get a little bit of perspective on your own, on the standards of your own time which might be a lot lower than you think they are because you're not comparing them with anything. Um, but yeah, definitely. And the Greeks really recognized this about Mimesis too. René Girard, in, in a lot of ways, who's a famous theor theoretician of Mimesis, he's riffing off a lot of what you find in, say, Aristotle, who says Anthropos is the mimeticotaton zoon. He's, human is the most mimetic of animals. And yeah, there, there's a lot of... There's a lot of value in, in, in imitation and also, I think, in reaching a little bit for your models to other cultures. So what are the sort of specific or concrete lessons that you might take away from someone like Marius specifically? What are some of the positive traits that you might want to emulate from his life? Yeah, Marius is, there's lessons in Marius that you can find from other Plutarch heroes. Marius is, I really like him because he's, he's very patient politically he's he doesn't really burst onto the scene of roman politics until he's 50 years old so there is an early we have some evidence that early on he's a, men, a mentee mm -hmm. of one of these great men of the time of the former generation scipio emilianus and he's like in the camp with scipio emilianus at numantia this rebel spanish city and yeah, it's there's a story that Scipio, somebody says, yeah, they're at a banquet and somebody says, Scipio, you're old. What will Rome do without you? To whom will we turn? And uh, the legend has it that he turns to young Gaius Marius, who's maybe in his late 20s, is like, yeah, perhaps to this one right here. And clearly Marius is cultivating relationships at a young age with people that can advance his career that he can also emulate. Like he's in a relationship of emulation. And you can see this with so many of these figures that Mm -hmm. Where they can't, like Pyrrhus, the great king of Epirus, is in this relationship of emulation with Demetrius, and who's the son of uh, just another Greek king of his time, who happens to be his brother-in-law. And Demetrius is like 10 years older. One thing you see in, in Pyrrhus's relationship with Demetrius, so Pyrrhus wants to be like Demetrius. He's a great king. He commands armies with elephants in them. 
and Pyrrhus ends up being a conqueror like Demetrius. It's not too long into Pyrrhus's life when he decides that his former mentor, this guy that he emulated, has to be his greatest rival. He ends up, they end up having all these, Demetrius is like in the next kingdom over and they end up competing for a lot of the same valleys that they're trying to control and just silly ter territorial squabbles. But th this pattern of your mentor becoming your rival is something that you also see in the life of Marius the other, from the other direction where Sulla, this guy that he ends up, his greatest rival that he ends up fighting a civil war with later in his life, Sulla is Marius's mentee in the war with a certain war that Marius is fighting. And so like you, you know, being aware of these dynamics of emulation so often in practice in structures like eventually leads to rivalry and you have to, you might have to reject your mentor, you might have to fight against them to make your own way in the world or to champion the cause that you really think is important. I think you'd see that in, in the life of Marius a lot. And Marius also, he's just an amazing like bider of time. He waits for the right moment. And Sulla and Marius both are men who failed several times in politics. They failed to get elected. These guys ended up both at different times or sequentially becoming Roman numero uno. They were both the greatest Roman of their time. And yet they, uh, they both, so Marius failed in his run for the praetorship. I think Sulla failed in his run for the praetorship. And they have this incredible persistence where they right. have this faith that it's going to work out for them. And I think so often that that is something that I take a lot of comfort from a lot of these figures that you see this time and time again is like persistence is perhaps the greatest factor in the success of somebody. And I think looking at a life on the scale of an entire lifetime, which Plutarch helps you to do there, they're short biographies that take you two or three hours to read, maybe. That's how it, about how long my podcast series are. You get the whole perspective of an entire biography in, in a relatively short amount of time. And that, I think that really helps you put your own story into perspective. Maybe at age 38, I haven't achieved what I want to achieve, but what's it going to look like at age 45, 50, etc.? And that can go both ways. Either Caesar takes a look at the statue of Alexander the Great when he's 33 and he says, ah, he like weeps. He says, ah, what had Alexander accomplished at age 33 when Alexander had already conquered much of the known world? And Caesar says, and yet I'm still like, I haven't even been praetor yet. I haven't done anything. So I like can give you this, this goad forward also, if you need it. That consideration can go both ways in the sense that one still has more time to live out one's life. But if one is doing well, you might just be at Alexander at 33 and things might not continue to go well for much longer. Yeah. Yeah. Memento mori. Yeah, that's right. There's the line from Solon's life. I don't think it's in his, put in his mouth, but that one should count no man happy until the end is known. Yeah, it's a right. common and deep theme. Yeah, yeah. That's, it's might be in Plutarch. It's definitely in Herodotus's story about Solon meeting Croesus. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I love how, how Stoicism takes a lot of these older wisdom traditions and codifies them. Um, Stoicism with Stoa. Stoa combines the ancient philosophy of Stoicism with meditation in a practical meditation app. It includes hundreds of hours of exercises, lessons, and conversations to help you live a happier life. 
Here's what our users are saying. I'm new to Stoicism and wanted to dive deeper with guidance. This is it. I love the meditations. I've practiced meditations with other apps, but this just seems to be more impactful. So happy I found this. They really took their time and laid out a great plan to work step by step in learning and applying this philosophy to your life. Find it available for a free download in the Play Store and App Store. Who do you think is one of the most virtuous uh, characters that Plutarch profiles? We've been talking about the kind of the naughty ones that he criticizes. I started the Cost of Glory in a way because I was inspired by two figures in particular that that are less known among Plutarch's figures. Mm -hmm. You've got famous ones like Pericles and Julius Caesar, but then I think two of the most obscure ones are Sertorius and Eumenes of Cardia. And I think these two are some of the more virtuous ones, actually. And I thought if, if these obscure ones are impressive, like how impressive are the more well-known ones going to be? But somebody like Eumenes is, he's, he's a secretary of Alexander the Great, and uh, it just ends up after Alexander dies. Well, before Alexander dies, he ends up working himself into the, a position of influence through just being extremely competent and extremely trustworthy. Um, and Alexander eventually promotes him to be a cavalry commander, even though he starts off ba being a, a pencil pusher. And but Eumenes is like is a really interesting study in in like the importance of loyalty and. So after Alexander dies, there's this debate of his generals, the strategoi, or the successors, the diadokoi, as to whether they should try to hold the empire together or whether they should carve it up. And eventually they end up basically carving it up. But Eumenes is one of the people that, that is standing for, let's hold this empire together and let's, let's keep Alexander's legacy intact. Um, and he, he wants to do that. By, by preserving the family of Alexander. So he, Eumenes is basically a loyalist. And he's loyal to Alexander's mother, Olympias, who has a lot of political influence. And he's loyal to Alexander's infant son, who was actually born after Alexander died. And right. Eumenes is just, he's like, he, he puts it all on the line to try to defend the honor of his dead friend. And also he sees this as like, the only way to keep the empire together and to prevent to prevent basically the whole thing, which this this empire stretches from Macedonia and Egypt through Iran, Iraq, the Indus River and Afghanistan and Pakistan, this huge empire. The only way to keep it together is to have something that was like above the, the kind of something that is like still associated with the kind of almost divine charisma of Alexander. And so he puts it all on, on the line for that. And he and there's many points in which he has the option of uh, of breaking faith with Alexander's family. The, he, the other generals try to bribe him to or force him to give up on this quest. And but he he ends up he's trying to prevent it from descending into a kind of all out king of the mountain war. Yeah, isn't the common story that something like at the end of Alexander's life, people come to him and say, "We will follow in your footsteps." And Alexander says the strongest. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So there's some story that says maybe Alexander actually wanted it this way. He wanted them all mm -hmm. to like 
prove themselves because he, for days, he lied, lay in bed and, and had the option of picking a successor and solving all their problems, but he didn't. And it's possible that Eumenes was like more loyal to Alexander than Alexander deserved. But I think that's a study in like the virtue of honesty and loyalty. And, um, and he came very close. Eumenes came very, it all revolved or turned on a couple of key battles, but I think standing for your principles. And even though he didn't win, he was remembered by posterity as the most honest of all the successors, as the most virtuous. And he was a really clever, wily guy too. So there's some really just great stories of his just iron will and uh, his trickiness. And another person that people really like is Cato the Younger, who resisted Caesar, the famous Stoic. Um, so there are some men of virtue. And Brutus is a kind of a debated figure, the friend of Caesar who ended up murdering him with uh, being one of his assassins. Was a, he was a dedicated Platonist. And so Plutarch's very inclined to be sympathetic with his kind of co-philosophical school member. That's another example where Plutarch ends up being criti critical of Brutus for precisely for the opposite of what Eumenes had is his faithlessness to his friend. So it's, what is more important? Is it more important to keep your state from falling into tyranny or to be loyal to your friend? And, and this is one of these instances where, you know, people face really tough choices and, and if you strive for a position in society, you're going to be facing with, faced with similar choices maybe too. So you need to think through those with people to pr better prepare yourself for when they come up. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting how there's sometimes this tension between personal ethics and what would be best for the Republic. Of course, there's always a tension in the sense that, oh, if you, you someone might feel that it's better to act viciously in order to seek some advantage or something like this. There's a conflict between self-interest and virtue, but there's also the deeper conflict where it doesn't seem like one can always extend the lessons that one takes from personal virtue to thinking about these larger scale decisions. The life of Cato seems like a possibly a good example of that, where what works for his personal life may not be what is best in the long run. Yes. Yeah. It, it, it might've been, it might've been that really Caesar was the best thing for Rome, even though it went against Cato's principles as a dedicated Republican. And it's there, what is it better to to book a bloody war that you're probably going to lose to stand on the principle of sovereign, the Republic meant to him, mm -hmm. freedom, liberty, tradition, or to just accept the reality that that the system is no longer sustainable as it is, and it can't really be reformed. And but even if you wanted to reform it, it would mean fighting a war with this extremely determined man who seems like probably the best leader that such a, a principate could hope to have. Yeah, it's, I think, yeah, there, and there's other ways in which kind of sometimes the Stoics of the Republic end up uh, not, like, you can definitely criticize them for some of their political choices. Rutilius Rufus is another one who, who opposed Marius, a really interesting figure that I discuss in a shorter episode. But yeah, it's very hard to translate those personal choices into political choices. One question one always gets when thinking about using ancient Greek or Roman characters as role models is that the world was, of course, quite different, both in the sense that how one spent one's time as a leader was on the battlefield much more often than lives like ours are today, but also in a sense that norms were quite different, right? People were exceptionally more violent. I told the story of Alexander where there's a sense 
where at his deathbed and he says, who's going to take the lead? And Alexander says the strongest. In a sense, that's very inspiring. You're like, oh, yes, that sounds very motivating and absolute meritocracy with high stakes. But on reflection, it seems like that. It's actually rather silly. It's a lot of point, pointless bloodshed. And sometimes one gets that sense while reading, uh, reading these ancient figures. So large question, but I'm curious, curious how you think about that. Yeah, there's, and they also, they had slaves and, and there were all kinds of ways in which they ethically diverge from us. I think in a way, the Romans and the Greeks are, first of all, they're living in a pre-Christian world. And in a way, Christianity brought some of the principles of ancient philosophy to popularize them in a way. The whole, Augustine talks about this a lot, the Roman Empire, the Roman Republic is this founded on honor. And he wants the Christian polity to be something that's founded on love, caritas or agape in Greek. And, and maybe it's not possible for a human polity to be founded on that instead of honor. But maybe it is, and it's worth trying. And I think that's something that you find in European political systems and philosophy in the United States, the founding of the United States. Like we're trying to build a, a society that isn't just about military supremacy and isn't just about the rule of the strong, that, that a system of justice and equality should reign, not just in our relations within our society, but between other states. In a way, I think the Greeks and the Romans are living in this kind of older world mm -hmm. of, of values that is a lot closer to sort of tribal nature of man that is still there for us, but we have a lot of checks and balances on it. And I'm not sure if this is a good answer coming up with it on the spot, but I mean, it, in a way, you need to like reckon with the like darker parts of our nature if you want if you want to be confident of your own philosophy and your own practice in life there are just people out there who have this incredible drive to power and ambition and they might cloak it in in nicer language now because that's actually how you get power in our world today rather than bragging and talking about how you're the best as the Greeks are just a lot more comfortable doing like the Homeric heroes. But yeah, I think that there's, so th at the same time, so there you're, you're fighting over indifference at the end of the day in the political game, right? Honor and power and wealth, these should be maybe preferred indifference from a stoic perspective. How strongly are you allowed to prefer them? And one of the ways that late antique philosophers think about this is if you want a society that's based on the best values that we get from philosophy, that the best men should rule, that the people, that the rulers should be people who have made an intentional study of character and virtue, and that they can transmit that by their own example down to other parts of, down throughout society, this kind of pyramid model, which is very, this is like very much the way that late, late antique Platonists think about it. It's also the way that Plato thinks about it. If that's true, then you may, you may or may not be able to change the actual value system of, of a society based around this indifferent value, honor. But what you can do is try to populate the positions of leadership with people who have the right values. And that's what Plato was trying to do in, with his political scheme in Syracuse, which is another story that Plato tells, that Plutarch tells in The Life of Dion, 
It's in Plato's seventh letter. And the, the late antique philosophers really have this value of trying to, to reach out to people in power, to, to communicate what is really good for humankind and what's really good for the individual to people who have a position of influence who are able to have a loudspeaker for those values. In a way, it's not like a, there's a kind of a practical answer. Maybe our society isn't as different as we think. And, and in, in a way, like having, putting philosophy in that position of honor is like the best you could hope for to say maybe the leaders aren't really or orienting their lives around the ultimate goods, but try to convert them. And that's the best you can hope for in this imperfect world we live in. How have you applied lessons gained from emulating these lives to your own? Certainly the, the Plato example was very influential on me in feeling like I like to promote philosophy and, uh, and virtue in the world, that it was necessary to take risks and to, to get out of the theoretical bubble. And yeah, I think in a lot of ways, yeah, the finding, finding a mentor one has really <laughs> I, been a big influence on me. I've definitely, since getting more into Plutarch's lives, I've definitely gotten way more intentional about my relationship development and trying to seek out people who have that combination of competence and professional credibility but also good character that, you know, and I know that I'm not going to, I'm not going to, like when we pick distributors for our, our industrial product, there are, there are a lot of people out there in the industrial sales world that it's like when they entertain their clients, they'll take them to strip clubs and just, I don't know, there's all kinds of nonsense that people get into. And I think like building a brand, you have to think about what kind of people you associate with your product. And to me, building a reputation based on values and being selective who you associate with. That's like a lesson that I've definitely taken from Plutarch's lives is your, your kind of brand as a person so much depends on who you associate with. And it's like that in business too. And it's really, it's, it is about your like duty to, to live up to this ideal of virtue and your kind of like commitment to a belief that like the, the happiest life is a virtuous life, right? But it's also good business. It's also like good business practice, good like long-term thinking about your legacy. Like this is another lesson that you get from Plutarch's lives. The people that, that compromise like on, like Sulla had this chance at the end of his life to, to become this great reformer after he won this extremely bloody civil war. But because he slacked on his, he was never a man of like great personal discipline. He was always just like a party guy and associated with just slow lives. <laughs> it was it's like a charming part of him. But in his later years, he's like partying with actors and there's, he's like instituting this, this program of kind of proscriptions, clearing out the people that were associated with the old regime, confiscating their property. And he ends up like, giving in to a lot of his minions and his underlings who are basically abusing their positions to go out and uh, and manufacture charges against people that they don't like or that they have a nice farm and Sulla's minion wants to just have it for himself and so he manufactures some charge and Sulla's like, yeah, whatever. And he's like favoritism towards his friends and the fact that he's just not paying attention to this like the most crucial moment in his career where it's all about the legacy that he leaves. Um, 
Is it going to be one of them? Is, is he going to be a justice bringer or is he just going to be another strong man who rules according to his own favor? Like history damned him for that fact. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's a way that I think you can, you can take a kind of pragmatic perspective on a lot of the principles of philosophy that don't you want people to speak well of you? Like it's not just about what you're supposed to do. It's about orienting your desires based on this bigger picture that you need to keep in mind. And that's why it's important. That's also why it's important to, to guard your reputation, even if it means in the short term, you're maybe you don't get that contract with the top distributor. You get the second place guy, but he's widely viewed as being like more honest. And, and this is one of the problems with our kind of churn and burn, fix and flip business practices today is that people, they'll hold on to businesses for five or 10 years and then they'll sell it to a private equity company or you go public and you cash out. And like people in the business world often aren't like that committed to the long-term character. I think it's fair to speak of a character of a company. And, and you know, that, that, that has an effect on the long-term value of a product, but we don't, we're not trained to think in these kind of mm -hmm long-term perspectives about things. And I, so that's like how it's affected my personal business philosophy for one. And certainly many lessons learned from what not to do. And from a lot of these guys, like I already mentioned Marius. And if somebody obscure makes a mistake, it's not noteworthy. There's, this is not like a lesson to be learned, but if somebody great makes a mistake that you're in this kind of emulated relationship with, you can learn so much more from the mistakes of people like that. So that's also something that I take to mind. Yeah. Excellent. That's a lot of good stuff there. One thought that brings to mind is there's a general meme or attitude that sometimes goes around that you shouldn't care so much about what other people think about you or what they say about you, which of course has a grain of truth in it. But one should always, I think, be mindful of the thoughts of people you respect or especially what virtuous people think about you and what they say about you and use that both as a force for motivation and I think clarifying what, who you should be. Absolutely. Yeah. And similarly, kind of popular wisdom is don't compare yourself to other people. But Plutarch's whole project is all about like methodically comparing yourself to the right people and, and how powerful a tool this is to compare yourself to the right people. But it's just about being selective. I think similarly with whose opinion you value and whose, whose model you hold yourself up against. Absolutely. So in Stoa, there's a way that we encourage people to practice called the contemplation of the sage and involves visualizing a sage, a role model, a virtuous person in detail, and maybe thinking about how they would act in your place or thinking about how you would act if you were being observed by the sage, or perhaps simply considering if the sage were to give you advice, what would they say? Do you have any thoughts on how to best practice this sort of exercise. I've listened to a couple of the exercises that you have on Stoa for this. And I think they're great. And I think that, so the, like we, we talked about how we're mimetic creatures and in a way, like getting yourself into the mind of somebody that you care about. First of all, you have to like study them well enough to what they would say. And, and one of the ways that uh, ancient schooled boys would, school children would practice this is through copying the words or trying to deliver a speech in the character of somebody that was a role model. Prosopopoeia, they called it the person, like 
calling a character to mind and that like having that other person imaginatively before your eyes, you can be there trying to think, okay, what should I do? What should I do? And all these arguments come to mind and, oh, maybe, maybe it's not that important to spend the money on this. Maybe it is. And, but then once you conjure up Seneca before you, it's just a lot clearer to imagine what he would say or Eumenes or Sertorius or somebody that somebody else that you admire, that there's something like, there's something instinctive about the way that our brain works that we think in terms of imitation. And we're able to parrot the thoughts and the actions and the attitudes of people to ask the whole, what would Jesus do fans? Mm -hmm. it's, I think it really, Plutarch talks about how the studying the lot, like virtuous deeds, like un unlike some works like artworks that make you admire them but don't make you want to imitate them like seeing a painting doesn't make you necessarily want to go paint a painting but the works of virtue are such that once you see them you're automatically like drawn to emulate them and in a way like that exercise of contemplating the sage is bringing that example of like virtuous deeds to mind like you can read about them but once you've read about them, you've got them you should cultivate that you can keep getting payoff from that study of the example in a meditative exercise and uh, it it works instinctively i think and it is, once again you're tapping into these like instinctive drives the mirror neurons and mimetic desire and even like the dopamine system which which is activated strongly the more confidence you feel of the result that you're going to get that's a way that you can like almost i hate this expression but, like hack your brain um and i don't like hack because it's like we're using our brain the way it's designed to be used mm -hmm. not like trying to short circuit something. But one of the reasons I think that the exercise works is because if a sage did it, that increases your kind of instinctive confidence that it's going to produce good results for you. And it's going to be easy for, easier for you to act accordingly. And so, I mean, yeah, little to add with as far as the exercise itself, but a lot to just say this, th there's deep roots to this and why it's effective. Absolutely. Excellent. Well, thanks so much for joining. Is there anything else you'd like to add or any note you'd like to end on? I love the app. I use it in the mornings. I love the kind of creative work that you guys are doing to bring to bring stoicism in line with you know, modern meditative practices into people's rooms and, and their routines. Yeah. So check out the cost of glory if it might help you contemplate a few wise people and some not so wise people. I try to make it entertaining for I hope that if people end up listening to my stuff that they'll they'll see that it's of a piece in a large part with what you guys are working on that the, at the end of the day the kind of entertaining stories of great figures of the past if approached with the right attitude has a lot of power to shape our characters and uh, as a kind of philosophical exercise. So it's been a real it's been a real privilege to lay out these ideas, hopefully in an intelligible way at greater length here with you, Caleb. Absolutely. Thanks so much. And yes, be sure to check out the Cost of Glory podcast. I think it's a rich bank of both role models and anti-role models, both of which are Indeed. exceptionally useful. Thanks for listening to Stoic Conversations. If you found this conversation useful, please give us a rating on Apple, Spotify, or whatever podcast platform you use, and share it with a friend. We are just starting this podcast, so every bit of help goes a long way. And I'd like to thank Michael Levy for graciously letting us use his music. Do check out his work at ancientliar.com 
And please get in touch with us at Stoa at stoameditation.com if you ever have any feedback or questions. Until next time.